Hey, community of faith, I hope you are good today. Um, officially, good afternoon. Um, listen, I'm going to try to talk fast for those that are in the room because we do have food trucks outside, and I know some of you are probably already getting hungry, so you're saying, okay, Wes, well, let's get going. Um, but before I jump in, I want to I say something specific to our online peeps this morning. I know some of you watching online, you have been uh, stuck online, not because you want to, but because you're... Uh, maybe your age or you've got some health compromising situations going on around you and you're trying to protect yourself and your family. And um, yesterday during For Our City, there was a group of volunteers who specifically focused on you and uh, put together some packages that we want to deliver to you, we want to bring to you. And uh, I wanted to tell you that because I wanna make sure that you will go to the Connect card and let us know that you are watching online because you're not able to be back here yet. And uh, we don't get to see you like we want to, but we still care deeply for you and we love you. And um, so on behalf of myself and our staff, do that for us so that we can connect with you that way. Um, And if you're in the room, let's just give our online peeps uh, a hand of applause that we let them know we love them. Um, It's been fun. Over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to see some of you who have been stuck at home for a year now. And uh, vaccinations are happening and people are becoming more comfortable with being out and about. So we're thankful for that. Um, You know, as we jump in today, I want you to think about and just consider with me, there are two kinds of people in the world. You know that, right? There's two kinds of people. You've got dog people and you've got cat people. (laughs) You thought I was about to go real deep, didn't you? (laughs) Where are my dog people at? Any, Any dog people? All right. All right. Nice. The uh, 9.30 crowd literally started barking. Um, All right, those are our dog people. Cat people, we got any cat people in the house? Okay, all right, good, good. Um, A little quieter, but that's okay. All right, so we got two kinds of people in the house, and I'm just gonna leave mine neutral for today. Some of you already know where I land on this, but uh, this is another one. There's two kinds of people. Some people say this one way, other people say it the correct way. How many of you say this similar to how you would say Jif, like the peanut butter. You're raising your hand because you think I'm fixing to call you out. You actually are saying it the correct way. Did you know that? So if you say Jif, like the peanut butter, supposedly, I read this week, that is the proper way to say this word. It's not gif, like gif out of here, all right? That's not what that is, all right? So this is a gif. It's a picture with some motion to it. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? It's not that important. There's two kinds of people in the world, though. These are important things for us to talk about. All right, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand for this, but uh, I think we can all come together and agree that uh, there are definitely people in the world that we don't like that, regardless of how they choose to do this, leave the role empty at times. And that's a frustrating thing in life, right? I I gotta clap out of that. All right, what about this? We got two people, kinds of people in the world. All right, some of you are are panicking right now, full-blown panic attack because you see this. Others of you see this and you're like, oh, there's people like me out there. I'm normal. (laughs) This is right. Okay. All right. What about this? Two kinds of people. You got people that hit this button and you've got people that hit this button. I hit whatever button I want to because I'm a control freak and I don't like to be told what to do. So sometimes I hit the stop. Sometimes I hit the snooze more than once because I don't want a device to tell me what to do, much less other people. So I I got issues, but uh, we all land in different places. There are two different kinds of people. What about this one? Two different types of people. There are those who say the glass is half full and there are those that say the glass is half empty. 
I'm not going to make you raise your hand on this, but as we consider that, as we get ready to land the plane from this eight-week journey of hope for our home, it's this idea of optimism and pessimism. You know, some of us, we just think, you know what, I'm wired to be a little bit negative all the time. I just kind of see the world through a negative lens. The glass is half empty. And others of you are like, man, I, I wear rose-colored glasses. Everything is good and everything's going to be okay. And, and so we find ourselves in one of those two camps. And at the beginning of this series, I proposed the question that we all probably have asked ourselves somewhere over the last several months, is there any hope for my home? Is there any hope for my family? And as I consider that and I think about that and we think about all the things going on in our homes, all the things represented today by us as we represent our homes, I'm not sure that optimism and pessimism work. I'm not sure that that's the mindset that we are to take. And so what I want to think about is I want us to propose this idea. I said this several weeks ago. Um, we have our past that oftentimes and all, actually always impacts where we are currently, specifically in our home, where we are in our home today. We've got our past that impacts the home of today, and what happens in our home today will ultimately impact our future. And I don't know that just having a positive outlook on things is the right way to do, or even to have a negative outlook on things is the right way to go. And so what I want us to consider today is what would it look like to not be naively optimistic, not be despairingly pessimistic, but instead to be hope-filled realistic, to have a hope-filled realism. What would that look like? I'm glad you asked, and I want us to dive into a story that you might be familiar with, even if you've never been in church. It's a story about a guy who built a boat, and there was a big flood that was going to come, and his name was Noah. And I think we can pull some things out of this incredible story of Noah and the ark that help us understand better how to live in these days how to live in our homes, how to steer our homes somewhere positive in the future. Because we know that what's going on today is not just going to impact us, it's going to impact the others in our homes with us, it's going to impact their homes one day, it's going to impact generations down from even today. And so I want us to think about this idea of hope-filled realism. So we're gonna pick up the story about Noah and the ark in Genesis chapter six. So we're going way back. This is way back in the beginning, beginning days. And we're going to start in verse five. Look what it says. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness, this word wickedness, this means the destruction. It's this idea that the people were living in such a way that they were choosing destruction for themselves, failing to trust the promises of God, failing to trust the protection and the provision of their heavenly father, choosing to live for themselves, resulting in destruction, devastation. And so it says that the Lord sees this wickedness of mankind and says that it was great on the earth. We don't know anything about that, do we? I mean, everything's good now. It says, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So this is something that's continuing to take place. It's almost like it's, it's taking over the world in some sense. It says, so the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That's important for us to understand because we can misinterpret what this verse is saying. Sometimes we can read a passage like this and we begin to reflect on God and we think, man, God, God even admitted his mistakes. God is sorry that he made men and women and people and humanity the way that he did. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's actually speaking more specifically that, that God is grieving 
that he's grieved by the fact that people have chosen to walk away from him. They've chosen life apart from him. It would be like a wife grieving the loss of a husband who chose to abandon her and walk away from her. It's what God is experiencing in this moment. So he's, he's heartbroken. He's grieving. He's in despair. And it continues on. It says, then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, and crawling things and the birds of the sky. For I am sorry, there it is again, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's interesting. You know, this passage creates a little bit of tension for us today because we begin to think like God is so good. And he's a God of love and he's a God of grace and he's a God of hope. But yet we find in this passage, like he's, he's about to destroy humankind. It doesn't make sense. Why, why did this happen? And we get to think about God as being kind of this evil dictator, this, this guy who thinks maybe, or this, 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 this being, this existence that, that thinks that he messed up. And so he's got to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over. But what you actually see in this passage is you see this through the context of all of scripture is you actually see the incredible love and compassion that God has for his people. The tenderness that he feels towards us. You see, he sees the sin in the world. He sees the destructive behavior that we choose to live by. And so he decides that this is the best way for him to try to rid sin from the earth. Think about, think about it like this. I don't know if you've walked through a cancer journey with somebody close to you. I know many of you have, I have. You know, if you're walking through a cancer journey with someone, oftentimes there's a procedure or there's a step in the healing and recovery process that involves cutting something out of the body, something that has got the cancer in it in order to preserve the life of the person. And in some sense, that's what this story is. It's God's way of taking out what's broken, what's destroying, what's killing humankind in order to preserve humankind. And it says that he chose Noah. Why Noah? I don't know. Noah is just an ordinary guy. He's an ordinary person like you and me. And God specifically chooses him. He says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that gives us a little bit of a glimpse that he chose Noah. But that Noah also recognized who God was. And he had favor in God's eyes because he chose to trust God. Look what it says after that. It says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is an interesting passage. Noah, an ordinary guy, but yet he chose to trust God in a day and an age in the history of the world that was incredibly dark and destructive. What's interesting is that God didn't just choose Noah, but he chose Noah to not just save him, but to also influence and save his family, his home, to have a hope for Noah's home. So Noah has a choice to make in this situation. You see the story begin to unfold and Noah has a choice to make in this moment. He begins to um, hear the plans that God has for him, that God has for his family. And honestly, it's, it's not something that's unique to Noah that's not available to us today because there is an opportunity for every single one of us in the room today, no matter where you are in life, to find favor, to respond just like Noah responds. 
You're like, well, I don't know that God has chosen me. The very fact that you're here today, hearing a message about the love of a heavenly father for you tells you and tells me that he is choosing you. He is reaching out to you, but there is an opportunity for you to do something in return. And it's simply to respond. You see, a hope-filled realism is active. It's active. It means that there's a response necessary. There's, There's action involved in this. It's not enough just to have hope. It's not enough just to say that I've got some hope. It's, it's more of about saying, I hope. Not that I have hope, but that I hope. I, it's active, it's working, it's, it's doing something in my life. It's a response to what I know. And we see this in the life of Noah. He has an opportunity not just for himself, but for those that are close to him. And it's the same opportunity that you and I have even today. Continues on in verse 17. What, what was the motivation? Why, why did Noah... Why did he respond this way? Why was this active in this way? Look what it says in verse 17. It says, I myself am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. I mean, it's gonna rain and it's gonna rain and it's gonna rain and it's gonna rain to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Everything is going to die. But don't miss this. He says, but I will establish my covenant. He's saying, I'm making a promise to you, Noah. I'm making a commitment to you. And he says, and you shall enter the ark you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. He has an opportunity to respond and to respond in such a way that's going to influence the people closest to him, specifically his family, his home. We talked about home all throughout the series, talking about home is where you are. Home is where you belong, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you have kids, don't have kids, empty nesters, wherever you are, you find yourself in a home. Noah has an opportunity to respond in this moment. How does Noah respond? Verse 22 tells us very clearly, so Noah did these things. There's no Hebrew interpretation for that. He did these things according to everything that God had commanded him. So he did. Why did God command him to do this? To preserve his life, not to take something from him, not to push him down, not to keep him away from things that are good, but to preserve his life, to protect his life, and Noah has an opportunity to act. He gives him specific directions, specific commands. You see, we have the exact same opportunity. You and me, no matter where we find ourselves, we have an opportunity to respond just like this, to know how to hope, to live in a hope-filled realism, but not just to live in it for us, but to live in it for us in a way that influences the people around us. There's power in this. But you can't lead people to places that you've never been. And so I don't want us to leave this place today and miss out on the opportunity to personally respond to God calling you out and saying, hey, will you trust me? Will you trust the things that I'm calling you to? Will, I, will you trust me with the plans and the purposes that I have for your life? That's what Noah is listening to. He's listening to his purpose and we all want purpose and we work our lives year after year after year trying to find purpose and that's what Noah finds here. It's an opportunity to act, to respond, to have hope. It's more than wishful thinking. It's more than just thinking, you know what? I hope it's gonna turn out better. I hope it's gonna be okay. It's a way of living. It's a way of responding. It's a way of working. Not only is hope a hope-filled realism active, it builds something. A hope-filled realism builds something. As it acts, it's acting to build something up. 
As you go back and you read the story of Noah, and for the sake of time, we don't have time to read through every single detail of the story, but I, I encourage you to go back and study it this week, read it. It's, it's insane, some of the things that take place, but as Noah is listening to God and as, as God is giving him these commands, he gives him very specific steps on how to build this massive boat. And this isn't just some row, row, row your boat kind of boat. This is a boat the size of one and a half football fields. It is massive. It is ginormous. God says that the flood is going to come in 120 years and he gives Noah specific direction on how to build up this ark, what to put in the ark, when to go into the ark, how to survive in the ark. He's given him all of these specific details, all of these specific commands. He's saying, I have a future for your home, Noah, and this is what it's going to look like. Can you imagine that? 120 years Noah and his family were in a place that was more than 100 miles from the closest body of water. Most of the people that he began to have conversation with didn't even know what a boat looked like. They'd never seen a boat because they'd never been anywhere with water. And all of a sudden, Noah starts to build this massive structure. People are saying, man, you have lost your mind. I can't believe you are trusting what God is telling you. You would be better off if you would just keep living like us. Noah's probably pleading with people. Can you imagine how exhausting that is? the barrage of public opinion, the barrage of culture trying to pull you in a specific direction. And Noah saying, no, 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 this, I gotta stay focused on this. I've gotta continue to respond to this hope in my life. And he begins to build. You know, we don't know a lot about his sons in this moment. We don't know what their mindset was like. We don't know where their belief was, but we know that Noah was leading them. He was leading them in this. And that's important for us to understand. No matter where you are in life, in your home, your family, your workplace, your neighborhood. He's calling every single one of us on purpose to live a life that's active, to live a life that's building something. Jesus said, go and build my church. And it was so awesome yesterday to, to visit several different of the locations for our city and to watch people serve and to watch the church be the church, building up the church. It was such a great thing to be, be, be a part of. Why do we do that? because we have a hope that's more than just an optimism about how things are gonna turn out. I mean, are things really turning out the way that you optimistically hoped that they would a year ago? I mean, this time a year ago, you were making summer vacation plans. You thought, man, my backyard oasis is looking fine. And now today it looks like a backyard no oasis. I mean, it's just, it's been a bizarre time. We can't just continue to live with this empty optimism that everything's gonna be okay. God is calling us to something different, but he's calling us into it, but he's also calling us to lead people into it. What does that look like for us? What does it look like for you to build people up? I'll give you one simple example. As I was listening to Mark teach in week two of this series, when he was talking about parenting, there was a verse that he spoke out that I'd heard before, but it just really kind of captured my attention. And my wife and I started talking about it. Our boys and I started talking about it. And we, we began to memorize it as a family. It's Proverbs 18, 21. Maybe you remember him saying this, or you wanna go back and read this, maybe even write it down somewhere in your home, but it says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. We all would agree that words can build up, but they can also really tear down. And we have to be really careful about how we're using our words to build up the way that God is calling us to build up in the homes that we find ourselves in. 
You know, what's interesting is in our homes, we, we, we have this tendency, and I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here because this is what we talked about in week one. You can go back and watch that. You can go back and watch any week of this entire series to kind of land here today. But we talked about the, 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 uh, the reality for some of us is that in our homes, we can become incredibly passive and we just don't do anything with intention. And a lot of times the result that comes from being in a place where we're comfortable and we're vulnerable and it, it's just easy to kind of relax and not do anything on purpose. A couple of weeks ago, I was in my living room and my wife um, thought it would be fun to video me on her phone. And the reason was is because I grew up in far west Texas near the border. Um, I grew up listening to Tejano music. I actually have an appreciation for Tejano music. I listen to it on occasion. You're like, wow, that's kind of weird. Um, but that's what I do. But I also, like my senior prom, there were five songs in English. Everything else was in Spanish. So I have an affection for Tejano music. And so I had Los Tigres del Norte playing on my iPhone in my living room. And I am walking around my living room doing the cumbia. And I thought about doing that for you today, but I thought it might be good not to, because I don't know that the spirit is leading in that way. But my wife, I turn around and my wife is videoing me. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's laughing. She goes, this is ridiculous. And I was like, you're right. And if you post that, I will not build up this house. I will tear it down. I mean, I was like, don't, let's not do this. But you know what's interesting? It's like, you're home and it's comfortable and you're free, and it's relaxing, and you can kind of do whatever you want to do. And sometimes we let that get to an extreme where we don't really do anything to build up. What kind of fruit are you producing in your home? What kind of fruit are you producing where you work? That verse tells us that we're producing fruit. When a tree produces fruit, who benefits from the fruit of the tree? It's not the tree. It's the people around the tree. Are you producing fruit that's bitter, that's resentful, that's hateful? Or are you producing fruit that's sweet, that's fresh, that's life-giving, that's nourishing, that's healthy, that's building something up in your home, in the places that you find yourself? This is what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to live in a way that's active, in a way that's building something up. It's not something that we have, it's something that we do. I don't just hope that I don't get cold the next time winter storm whatever shows up. I'm going to put a coat on. I'm going to act. Noah didn't just hope that he wasn't gonna get wet. Noah built a boat. Why? Because God made a promise to him. He made a commitment to him. And Noah remembered that and he responded to the promise that God had made in his life. As you begin to read this story, you know, it's bizarre to me that we can let this be one of those prime stories for our kids' ministry. Maybe you grew up and maybe even sing songs about Noah's Ark and how the animals went marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Maybe that's not the right song. But it's kind of the story that we kind of paint pictures of. And I remember my mom having like this Noah's Ark in our house. And as I read the story, I'm like, man, what a twisted story, especially for kids. I mean, can you imagine Noah does exactly as God calls him to do, pleading with those around him to listen, to join him in the boat maybe, and nobody will listen. And so Noah takes his family, just as God tells him, into the place that he's built for their protection. The rain begins to fall, the waters begin to rise. Can you imagine the devastation? Can you imagine the death, the heartache, for Noah and his families are sitting on this boat, probably somewhat 
thankful that they're not experiencing what's outside of the place that God had called them to build to protect them from his wrath, but yet they find themselves in this place hearing the voices of those they know who may be drowning in the floodwaters. Those that are the weakest, those that are the youngest, maybe the oldest. I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredibly difficult situation, this flood that takes place. But Noah's faithful. For months, he sits on this boat, waiting for the day when he's going to be set free from the boats. Look what it says when you skip to Genesis chapter eight in verse 13. It says, now it came about in the 601st year, Noah was 601. So I don't care how old you are today, feel good about yourself because you are not as old as Noah. And if anybody ever tells you that, you have my permission to smack him upside the head. All right, now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month on the first of the month that the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the surface of the ground had dried up. Continues on, it says this. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So this guy and his family stayed on the boat for several more weeks after the ground was dry. I mean, you see this incredible faith to trust because God didn't say you can leave yet. So you continue to see this active hope filled realism for Noah in this moment. It says the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah and Noah's listening. God says, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. I don't know about you, but I know that last week after the winter storm kind of went away, just walking around the house and driving around town, it was kind of depressing. It was kind of frustrating. You're seeing people's pictures on Facebook and social media of pipes that are busting and ceilings that are falling in. You go back just a few years and we experienced the incredible flood of Harvey and all the devastation. And you just begin to remember some of the homes and some of the destruction that took place as a result of this natural disaster. I don't want us to miss what's happening here. Noah is walking off of this boat and he is stepping in onto the ground at the scene of probably the most bizarre, destructive natural disaster in the history of the world. One which, by the way, will never happen again. We've been promised that. And he does something interesting right as he steps off the boat in this moment where everything is probably surreal and overwhelming. The loss and the destruction, the gratitude as Noah is thinking about, oh my gosh, I cannot believe we survived this. The gratitude and recognizing that God has protected not just him, but also his family. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And so in this moment, Noah steps off the boat and look what Noah does. This is then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the every kind of clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. You know, up to this moment in the story, the only thing we've read about that Noah has been doing is everything that God commanded that he do. God told him to build a boat, he built a boat. He told him how to build the boat, where to build the boat, what to build the boat out of. He told him when to get on the boat, when to get off the boat. I mean, everything God is commanding and Noah is responding in obedience. And in this moment, Noah responds in a way that God doesn't call him to do. It would have been really easy for me to walk off that boat and think to myself, we did it. Turn around to my boys and be like, guys, your dad's a hero. 
the boat made it. Or maybe, I, maybe it would have been easier to walk off the boat and think to myself, oh my gosh, when I look around and I see the destruction, the loss of life, and begin to think to myself, God, how, how did you let this happen? What is going on? But Noah's response is a response of worship. He doesn't make it about himself. He's not looking for honor. He's not looking for respect. He simply wants to lead his family to worship and recognize the one who has rescued them, the one who has preserved their life. He's saying, this isn't about me, guys. It's not even about you. It's all about our heavenly father. It's all about his compassion and his grace and his love for us that's so big and so strong that it saved us from death. He's preserved our life. The last thing is simply this. A hope-filled realism points to Jesus. And you might be thinking, and as I put that, Jesus, hang on a second, Wes. Where did Jesus show up here? Where's Jesus at in this story? As I read about Noah and his three boys, and, and I don't see anything about Jesus. It's be real easy for us to kind of move past this and just kind of look at Noah as kind of being the hero. But Noah's not the hero. He's just an ordinary guy, an ordinary person like you and me, with an opportunity to respond to life, life with his heavenly father. And so many of us so desperately desire hope for our homes. And we're active and we're responding but we're responding to the wrong things. We're reacting to the culture. We're reacting to our fears, failing to pay attention to what God is calling us to do. And then as he calls us to do what he's calling us to do in our homes, to lead, to build, to cultivate, he wants to bring life. And as he does that, he's calling us to point to Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, it says this, and I'll close with this last passage. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Please who? Please God. This is for the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. That's an active word. There's nothing passive. There's nothing naively optimistic or despairingly pessimistic about seeking him. It's intentional. It's an action. In verse seven, it says this, by faith, hey, there's Noah again. We went from Genesis in the Old Testament to Hebrews in the New Testament, and Noah shows back up. Why? Not because he's the hero. Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation, the rescue, the preservation of his life and the life of his home, of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to the faith. It wasn't what Noah did that accomplished life for Noah. It's everything that God did. Because as you read the story of Noah and you continue all the way through the Old Testament, you see this continuous cycle of the failures of humanity combined with the faithfulness of God. And eventually God sent the real hero being Jesus to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish so that we could have life. There was nothing we could do to get to him. He did everything he needed to do to get to us. And it begins to shape our perspective. In the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, Jim Collins interviews Admiral James Stockdale. James Stockdale was a prisoner of war in a Vietnam war camp for seven years. 
He survived and he had some incredible stories to tell. And in the interview, the admiral was asked the question, who is the most likely to survive in the concentration camps? And he had an interesting response to Jim Collins. He says, you know who dies first? The person who dies first is the optimist. He says, because the optimist has this flimsy hope, this, this flimsy idea that, that maybe somebody's going to rescue us by Christmas. And he said, those hopes were always unrealistic. And he says, they were always the first to die. And so Jim Collins responds, he says, wait a minute. He says, the optimist dies first. He says, so are you saying it's better to be a pessimist? And Jim Collins says, no, absolutely not. And he goes on to say, he says, the people that survive have a hope that a better day is coming, but they have to pull it together with a realism that life is extraordinarily hard. I think we would all agree that life is extraordinarily hard. It's difficult. And because of this conversation, the Stockdale paradox was coined. It talks about having a discipline to confront their most brutal facts in light of knowing the end result, knowing the end of the story. In other words, survivors of those in the prisoner of war camps who are not naively optimistic, nor are they despairingly pessimistic. They have a unique perspective. They have a realistic perspective, a realistic hope. And it's that hope that they find survival. It's that hope that brings life. That's the hope that you and I have. That's the hope-filled realism that I believe God is calling us to, that the story of Noah points us to. My hope today for us as we land this is that our hope would be in Jesus, that we would point to Jesus, that we would use our lives, we would use our resources, we would use our time and our opportunities in our homes with the people that we work with, people we go to school with, people that we live next door to, we would use this to point to Jesus because he's the only real source of life. It's not enough to be optimistic. It's certainly painful to be pessimistic. Yes, do good. Yes, Think good things, but don't live being optimistic or pessimistic. Let's be hope-filled realists. Hope because of what Jesus did, what he accomplished on our behalf so that we could have life. Would you be willing to trust that and step into that? God has come near to you, and these are tough days. And I know for a fact, the only way to get through some of the most difficult days is knowing that my heavenly father is right here with me. I know he wants to be that for some of you and some of you have tried to push him away and today you just need to invite him in and just say, I I trust you. Today I trust you. I see it. I finally see it. I finally recognize that I need it. So God, I trust you because of what you did through your son, Jesus. Will you pray with me? I don't know where this lands for everybody in the room, but before we pray, I just want you to consider with your eyes closed, I just want you to think about where does this land for you? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus already. There's, there's been a, a pattern in your life of, of trusting Jesus, but you found yourself in a place of maybe being hopeless, maybe being specifically hopeless for your home. Can I just tell you that whatever that is that you feel the most hopeless about, the right thing to do is not to try to keep making it better the right thing to do is to lay it down and trust it with God. He knows already. He just wants you to rest in who he is. 
He loves the people that are close to you more than you could ever love those people. And what he may be calling you today is just to take a posture of humility and confession to say, God, I trust you with this. Maybe you're in a place today that you've never trusted Jesus as the Lord of your life. You've never let God be the end all, be all, everything in your life. And today, maybe through the story of Noah, you see that this is your opportunity to respond, that he's calling out to you, ordinary you, with all the dysfunction and all the chaos you've experienced in your past because he wants to flip the script of your life into a new future, a future and a life with him whose hope is secure because we know how the story ends. Would you trust him today, wherever you find yourself? God, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for the story of Noah all that it means, all that it, all that it accomplished. But even more than that, I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for that you gave your life for us. Right now, I pray that you would just give us the confidence and the courage to step into that, to walk just, just one next step, letting you build in us what you wanna do through us. Would you work inside our lives first, bring out an inward change in us that begins to change the external around us. I pray for our homes. Would you work miracles with our kids, with our spouses, with our parents, with those that we're close to, with those that we love? Do what only you can do. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.